James K.A. Smith, Culture as Liturgy. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Faith and Work. Philosopher and cultural critic James Smith expounds how Christians engaged in cultural renewal need to be cognizant of how cultural practices viscerally shape our desires. We are not disembodied brains who view the world with a detached intellectualism, says Smith. We are shaped by the cultural spaces we inhabit and the cultural habits we practice. Unless we realize what subliminal messages these cultural liturgies are sending, we will be unaware that they are drawing our hearts to an alternative and unchristian vision of the kingdom. Basically, what I want to do today is lay out for you, I hope this won't sound too boring, um, I really want to offer you a different theory of culture, of what culture is. Now, but I want you to know that that's going to be more exciting than it sounds off the get-go. Um, because what I, want you, what I want to come away with is a new understanding of culture that is rooted primarily in practices, as culture as something that we do, rather than culture as some sort of entity or deposit that is out there for us to think about. Um, I suppose I should flag right up front that I'm using the term culture here not in the narrow sense of what you get at the Metropolitan Opera or at the museum or something, but I'm using culture in a wider sense of the work that we do that unpacks the potential of this world to uh, um, elucidate possibilities. And I guess my my angle and what I want to press today is um, something like this axiom or this, this uh, principle. Every theory of culture assumes an anthropology. Okay? Every, every account of culture assumes an anthropology. And by an anthropology, I mean simply a take on what human beings are. So every theory of culture assumes something about the nature of human beings, the nature of human persons, what sorts of animals we are. Now, I think, um, unfortunately, a lot of Christian accounts of culture, not only Christian accounts, but a lot of Christian accounts of culture, end up with a bad theory of culture because they are working with a bad model of human persons. And the problem with the model of human persons that they're working with is that they view human beings as primarily thinking things. That is, a lot of our operative theories of culture and our accounts of culture and therefore accounts of cultural change and transformation, a lot of those theories of culture implicitly and unwittingly assume a model and picture of human persons that the philosopher Charles Taylor, another Canadian, uh, would call an intellectualist model of the human person. We could call it a thinking thing model of the human person, or if you like something better, it's a picture of human persons as kind of brains on a stick, right? Now, if you, if you start with a functional implicit assumption that human beings are thinking things, brains on a stick, then what will happen is you will get you will get the very view of culture that you deserve, which is you will start to think that culture is sort of a realm of messages and ideas. 
The problem I want to try to press today is that culture is not primarily an intellectual, heady uh, phenomenon because we are not primarily those kinds of creatures. We are not primarily thinking things. We need a retooled, more holistic picture of human persons, not primarily as thinkers, not primarily as knowers, not even primarily as believers. What I want to suggest to you today is that human persons are fundamentally lovers. And if you start with a picture of human persons as fundamentally lovers, that will generate a very different account of what culture is. So that's where we're headed. Does that make sense for everybody? So what I want to do is we're going to go in this order. I want to first of all unpack this alternative anthropology that, that focuses on the nature of human persons as lovers. Then secondly, I want to tease out why I think that would look generate a very different theory of culture and therefore cultural engagement and cultural change. Uh, and then finally, I want to say a word about what that might mean for how we reconsider the nature of Christian worship. Uh, and, and the nature of the church in relationship to that. So let's begin by thinking about our nature as lovers. We are what we love. And I was coming to New York, so I felt playful, and I have this playful subtitle for the first section, Taking David Brooks to Church. Now, if any of you have had an opportunity to read Brooks' new book, The Social Animal, or basically if you've been reading his columns for the last, what, six years, it feels like, he has constantly been pushing this theme that in fact so much of our policy, so much of our theory, uh, so much of our strategies with respect to finance, with respect to politics, with respect to economic policy are wrong and have been unproductive and mistaken precisely because, well, we've been working with a view of human persons as if they were rational animals. Now, I have four teenagers, so I know human beings aren't rational animals. Um, uh, Brooks' argument, and, and I, by the way, I very, very much commend this book, The Social Animal. It's, it's, it's exactly on the kind of themes that I think we need to be thinking about. Brooks says, if you just think of human beings as thinking things, if you imagine that they are the kinds of rational decision-making agents that, that uh, economics tends to envision in its theories, you will always get it wrong because we are shaped by all kinds of social forces that are operative at a deeper level than what we deliberate consciously and rationally. Um, so we are, Taylor said, or, or, um, Brooks says we are primarily social animals. Here's, I'm gonna push, I'm going to take David Brooks to Redeemer and say, actually, David, if you would come just a little bit further, I think you would also have to see that it's not even just that human beings are social animals. The argument I want to make this afternoon is that human beings are fundamentally liturgical animals. Liturgical animals. Now, for some people, liturgy is kind of a bad word, um, or ritual is sort of a bad word. I want you to just suspend judgment on that for about 20 minutes, okay? Because I want to explain, I'm going to be using this word liturgy, which is kind of a churchy term, kind of a Catholic term, kind of, but I'm going to be using it in a more generic sense uh, to make this claim about the nature of who we are as human persons. So let's do this in two steps. Let's ask, first of all, what defines us and then what moves us? What really makes us what we are and who we are and then what 
drives us, uh, what, what motivates us. So let's think through this first part. And I've tried to give you a little bit of a model here. This is kind of the limits of my ability to work with MS Draw. Um, but he, there's a picture here that I want you to try to absorb. On the thinking thing model of the human person, the human person's identity, the center of gravity of the human person is, for lack of a better term, located in the head. So you are what you think. You are what you know. You are what you believe. The problem is, <laughs> I don't really think that's true. For this reason, if I really want to know who you are, if I really want to know sort of what defines you, if I get the answers to the question, what do you know, what do you believe, what do you think, I sometimes worry that I won't yet really know what you're about. The question I really want to ask you, the question I really want answered if I want to know who you are is this question. What do you want? What do you want? If I know what you want, I know who you are. Now, I should put my cards on the table here and tell you pretty much everything I'm going to suggest to you today is a ripoff from a fifth century African bishop named Augustine. St. Augustine of Hippo, one of the great doctors of the church, famously opened his confessions, which was sort of his spiritual autobiography, a long prayer. But the first paragraph of the Confessions opens with this claim. You have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. You, he's praying to the Creator, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. The entire panoply of Augustine's Confessions is not a long litany of the things that he believed. It is precisely the course of his loves, of what he was longing for, of his passions. You have made us for yourself and our hearts, okay, and that's the picture we wanna pick up on. The center of the human person, biblically, uh, theologically, and I think increasingly, as we are seeing, psychologically, is located in what the biblical tradition has called, the Christian tradition has called the heart, which is this affective core of the human person, which is the seat of our passions and our desires. And it's precisely that centering in the heart of our longings, our desires, our passions, that defines us. If I want to know who you are, I'm going to ask you the question, what do you want? Now, we'll come later to the problem, which is you might not know what you want. Or you, you know, somebody, if I ask myself, what do I want? I'm not always true to myself in answering that question. Why? Because I know what I'm supposed to think and I know what I'm supposed to believe. So we have to deal with a bit of a gap going on here between my wants, my longings, my desires, and what I think and I believe. So, but let's come back to then thinking about what difference would this make for how you think about human persons? I'm trying to give you a sort of a threefold picture of the human person. The human person is not a container for ideas. 
Okay? The human person is not primarily a receptacle for propositional beliefs. Now, did you notice in both of those places I said primarily? It's not primarily. It's not like you don't know anything. It's not like you don't think anything. It's not like you don't believe anything. Of course you do. But you are not primarily defined by what's in some sort of intellectual container. Instead, on this picture, you are, instead of that static container, you are this dynamic drive. <laughs> that is, the center of the human person is, has to be diagrammed as this arrow because what it means is you are defined by what you are pointed at. We are, philosophers would say, we are intentional creatures. Now, by the way, that doesn't mean that you're always thinking through everything. We'll get to that point. Intentional here just means from the Latin term intensio, which simply means to aim. So to be human is to be the kind of creature, the kind of animal who is aimed at something, essentially. We are all after something. We all have a project. We are all oriented towards some end, some telos, the Greeks would call it, some, some, some goal that we are oriented towards. So the center of who we are is actually this dynamic engine that is always driving us towards something. So we are first and foremost intentional creatures who are aimed at something ultimate. And here's the kicker, the fundamental mode in which we intend the world is love. That is, the, 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 the most fundamental way that we are oriented to our world is love, desire, longing. I should tell you, by the way, um, this model overcomes a weird dichotomy that Christians have sometimes inherited between I'm using a lot of foreign words today. I'm sorry, I didn't expect that. But uh, we inherit a, a, a common dichotomy between eros and agape. Are those terms that sound familiar to people? So eros is one Greek word for love, which unfortunately we only think of it as erotic, and then we, our minds sort of go in the gutter or something, right? We just think erotic, pornographic, that section of Barnes & Noble that I'm not supposed to be in. Um, and then we think, well, we're Christians, so when we talk about love, we're talking about agape, which is, you know, the sacrificial, giving, choice, so on. Um, on Augustine's model, agape is good eros. Because eros just means desire. And on this model, desire is not a bad thing. Why? because we've been made to desire. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Desire is not the problem. It's what you desire that's at issue here. So on this model, to say that our fundamental orientation to the world is love is both to say that, it, well, is to say that our fundamental orientation is erotic. <laughs> but now the question is, what do you desire? What do you really long for? So that's the second part of the model. On this model then, human persons are defined by their loves, their desires, their longings, their passions. And those passions are ultimately oriented towards a target that um, the Greeks would call our telos, 
our goal, our end. Or we could use sort of a biblical cadence of language and say every human being is defined by their love and longing and desire for some vision of the kingdom. The kingdom. Now the kingdom here means um, what do you picture as flourishing? What do you think the good life looks like? All of us are implicitly and affectively longing for and living towards some vision of the kingdom, some vision of what the good life is. And that vision governs and trumps almost everything that we do. All right, is everybody with me? Third element, we're gonna have, by the way, we have lots of time for Q&A afterwards. Third element, if I am defined by what I love, and if what I love is ultimately some vision of the good life, then I have to ask myself, well, how does my love get pointed? Because on Augustine's model, and, and again, I think this has a lot of viability in our contemporary context, to say that all human beings are oriented towards some ultimate vision of the good life, that they long for it, is not, by the way, to say that we are all after the same one. There are competing visions of that kingdom. There are competing visions of the good life. And so when Augustine says, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they rest in you, he's saying that human beings are really made to be ultimately oriented towards and longing for God and God's kingdom. However, the effect of, say, sin and fallenness and brokenness on that structure of being human is not that it turns off your love. The effect of sin and brokenness and fallenness on our nature as lovers is not that we stop being lovers. It's that we start loving the wrong things. We start loving and being drawn towards and longing for rival kingdoms. And so for Augustine, uh, um, it's not a question of whether you love. The question is what you love. And in a way, the Confessions is um, sort of a, a fifth century version of, I think it's, an, it's either a Waylon Jennings song or an Eddie Rabbit song, looking for love in all the wrong places. Looking for love in all, you know it, don't you, right? That's, that's, Augustine says that is the career of humanity that we are sort of doomed to, it, and you might actually think it's liberation and freedom, but Augustine says you are sort of doomed to be looking for love in all the wrong places because you can't shut off that drive, that passion, that longing. And so instead what will happen is you'll end up getting oriented towards other rival kingdoms. Well, what that means then is that my heart, this affective core of who I am, is the fulcrum of my identity. It is, the, um, it is the site of my dispositions. It is the site of my habits that create in me a kind of internal tendency 
to be aimed towards some end. So our habits, our uh, internal dispositions, are these kinds of inclinations that we have that function at an affective level rather than an intellectual level that make us oriented towards some ultimate vision of the good life. But those habits are not hardwired. Those habits are not hardwired. This is one of those places where if, if, um, if we could have a conversation with David Brooks. So in The Social Animal, which again I think is a fantastic book, um, Brooks pushes a lot of these similar themes and says, look, we need to recognize that actually what governs people's activities is more on this affective register rather than an intellectual register. The problem, the one frustration I have with Brooks is that he then sometimes gives you the impression that everything is kind of preloaded by evolutionary dispositions. And, and not always, but sometimes he underplays how much our orientations are formed. They are inscribed in us. And so the real crucial part, and this is finally we're going to get to culture. I, I see people thinking, what the heck does this have to do with culture? Here's the thing. Our, my my um, dispositions, my loves, my longings, the aiming of my heart is the product of ritual formation. That is, the orientation of my loves the, the, the uh, uh, um, directionality of my desire is inscribed in me through immersion in cultural practices that over time habituate my love to be aimed in a certain direction. So the fact is, look, you don't wake up on Monday morning and say, well, today I'm going to start loving X. I mean, you can say that. Have you noticed by like Tuesday afternoon it's gone? Why? Because you've just made this sort of intellectual choice and decision, but the problem is your loves, your loves are not the outcomes of deliberate choices that you're making. Your loves have been shaped implicitly, unwittingly, covertly, over time, through your immersion in concrete, embodied, communal practices. We have a shorthand term for those kinds of formative uh, uh, practices. Sometimes we just call them rituals. Rituals are formative over time just to the extent that when you are immersed in them, slowly but surely, they become uh, uh, um, second nature is what Aristotle would say. For Aristotle, to be virtuous is to acquire a second nature so that you are kind of automatically oriented to choose the good. But you don't acquire that second nature. You don't acquire habits by information. Let's put it that way. You are not going to acquire any habits from my lecture this afternoon. You might get some information. Hopefully, the hope is, you get some information that propels you to immerse yourself in practices that would help you to acquire habits. But the thing is, you do not acquire habits through information. You do not acquire dispositions 
through the intellect. Now, everybody knows I'm not being anti-intellectual, right? Do I have to say that? This isn't an anti-intellectual thing. It's about recognizing, however, the limits of intellect. <laughs> you can't think yourself out of all your problems. So, the crux of thinking about culture, then, is to think about cultural practices as those kinds of formative rituals, if you will, that over time are actually forming your loves. What we need is an erotic theory of culture. And that's what I want to sketch momentarily. Let me though say a second thing in terms of this anthropology, this picture of the human person. If what defines us is what I love, then we can ask this other question, well, what moves me? Um, what, what sort of philosophy of action would be con consistent with this picture of the human person? And this is where I think the kind of work that David Brooks summarizes in The Social Animal, all the kind of interesting work that's going on in um, social psychology, neuroscience, cognitive science, all of that, by the way, is confirming ancient Christian wisdom about spiritual disciplines, okay? And what moves me, what, 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 what accounts for my action in the world, also, we need a different picture of that. If, you have, if you're working with this thinking thing picture of the human person, if you're working with this intellectualist talking head brain on a stick model, what you will tend to think is that your actions are always the outcome of you thinking through the possibilities. You know, you deliberate about the possibilities, you think of what your options are, you select an option, and then you choose to do it. Um, here's the thing. I think from the best knowledge that we have right now, in any given day, about three to five percent of your action is the outcome of that sort of conscious deliberation. <laughs> about three to five percent of what you do in any given day actually fits that intellectualist picture where you think through the options, you deliberate, and you come out with an outcome. What that means is about 95 percent of what you do in a given day is the product of pre-conscious operations. And I think one of the things, one of the best things that could happen to the church, <laughs> uh, but one of the best things that could happen for how we think about culture and cultural formation is for us to appreciate what, what we, are, I think, are learning from uh, contemporary psychology and neuroscience and cognitive science, which emphasizes that so much of my action is not something that is pushed out of me by duties and beliefs and propositions. It is actually most of my action is pulled out of me because I am attracted to some end. I'm pulled towards, I long for some goal. And that's what accounts for a great deal of my action and my behavior. Um, uh, I, I always, this is, my, I have the one teenager who, um, you know, he's not thrilled about going to church on Sunday morning and stuff. And so I get up there and I'm trying to wake him up just to get him out of bed by nine o'clock. And it's such a fight to get this teenager to get ready to go uh, uh, to church. But then Friday, 
He'll be like having breakfast with his friends at 6.30 a.m. and he's like shiny and new by 6 a.m. What's going on? Well, <laughs> this, is, this is a failure in parenting day confession, but uh, um, he wants to go to breakfast, <laughs> right? He wants to be with his friend. There's so much of our action is pulled out of us by what we are longing for and what we desire. Now, here's what I think is significant about that. Um, Psychologists like Timothy Wilson at the University of Virginia, uh, Barg and Chartrand and others, talk about what they call automation. Automation. Now, don't get too worried about this being overly mechanistic picture of us and things. Uh, um, they don't mean it that way. What they mean is simply this. If you imagine our consciousness as a sort of iceberg, right? And everybody knows the proverbial tip of the iceberg is just a small little part of it. Well, the tip of our conscious iceberg is that sort of conscious deliberative action that you undertake. The big part of the iceberg of your consciousness is this unconscious, pre-conscious orientation to the world, which actually manages most of how you get through your day. How did that pre-conscious get loaded, so to speak? Not that, well, here's what, I don't want you to hear, oh, well, that's all hardwired. It's not. What Wilson and others emphasize is that the orientations that we acquire, these unconscious, pre-conscious orientations that we acquire are learned and acquired and absorbed through practice. And once they are practiced enough, they become automated, which simply means you can do it without thinking about it, without thinking about it. So easy example. Um, uh, if some of you maybe, some of you might be young enough to learn, remember learning to drive. The rest of us, let's say we remember teaching our teenagers to drive, right? Harrowing experience. Why? Because when a teenager is learning to drive, all of the action related to driving is in that tip of the iceberg, right? That conscious executive function where they have to deliberate. So when the teenager's learning to drive, just check the blind spot, check the mirror, click the signal. Every aspect of the activity of driving is up in that conscious deliberative part of consciousness. What does it mean to learn to drive? Well, what it means is, is you do it enough so that the vast majority of driving becomes automated for you and you don't think about it anymore. So now you get to be like us and you had like this terrible day at work and this big fight in a meeting and you're driving home and you're steamed about it and all of a sudden you're in your driveway and you're like, I don't remember driving home. <laughs> That's because your conscious activity, especially if you're driving a familiar road, you know, you could do this with your eyes closed. Why? Because all of that has become so automated that you don't have to kick into your deliberative, conscious, overt reflection anymore. Now, what if love was automated? What if some orientation to ultimate flourishing was inscribed in us over time by practice such that our orientation and disposition towards the good and the good life 
became such a part of our second nature that now, in a way, you didn't have to think about it anymore. What, what if discipleship was like that? But what if that's actually exactly how cultural formation works? Well, that's what I want us to turn to now. If love is formed in us, it's not a given, it's not the outcome of thinking it through, but if love is actually an orientation, a habituation that is formed in us by practices, then cultural practices are pedagogies of desire. Cultural practices are pedagogies of desire. Why? Well, first of all, because those rituals that form us, those rituals that orient us and aim our love, are visceral. They're tactile. They're bodily. They are physical. They are communal. The way to your heart is through your body. There's an old patriarchal saying, a way to a man's stomach is, a way to a man's heart is through his stomach. The way to everyone's heart is through their body. That is, this is, this is a holistic picture of human persons that emphasizes the rhythms and rituals that we go through in a day are precisely working on us at this affective, imaginative level because we are those kinds of creatures. We are those kinds of animals. We are, we are shaped bodily. This is the wisdom of historic Christian sacramental traditions that have emphasized that, Christ, that Christian faith is not an idea that you can drop into intellectual receptacles. It is a way of life that people are invited into through communal, participatory, embodied practices. So it's precisely tactile, visceral, kinetic rituals that form our desire. Now, that's exactly why cultural practices function as liturgies for us, okay? Now, let me go back to one point about automation. Uh, Bargain Chartrand, psychologists emphasize that on the one hand, I can acquire automated behaviors very intentionally. So for instance, anyone here who has learned a musical instrument knows that you only acquired that kind of bodily know-how with the instrument through hours and hours and hours and hours of practice, right? And what's going on in that practice is it's just kind of seeping into your fingers know stuff, right? Your, your body knows something. That happens over time. You acquired that habituation intentionally, or somebody, your mom or somebody, right, forced you to practice. And, and the fact is that in a way you have chosen to automate something. Does that make sense? But Bargain Chartrand also emphasize that we can unintentionally automate things if we don't realize that it's happening to us. In other words, if we don't realize the formative powers of certain rituals, routines, and practices, what we might not realize is that they are habituating in us certain orientations to some vision of the good life. It can all happen very covertly, unwittingly, 
We might even very consciously be saying, no, this is what I love, this is what I believe, this is what I long for, and not realize that these other cultural practices are working on our affective core, are working on our hearts. And so what I want to suggest is, if you have a theory of culture that's built on this view of the human person, then as you're looking at culture and considering culture, it's not so much a matter of scanning around to see what are the ideas and beliefs and propositions that are operative in a culture. You should be honing in on the practices of a culture and asking, what do they love? <laughs> what, what are these practices doing to me? Culture isn't just something that we do. Culture does something to us. Practices are not just something that we do. They are formative. They are doing something to us. And so what I want to throw out, and this is, this is an analogy. It's, a, um, it's, it's stretching the term. But what I've tried to suggest is I think it makes a difference if you start thinking about culture and cultural practices as liturgies, as liturgies. Now, liturgy tends to be sort of a religious word. I want to use it in this sense. I'm using the term liturgy. Um, well, it is true because I guess I do want people to appreciate what I think are religious functions of cultural practices. But let's say a liturgy means this. Forget church for a second. By a liturgy, I mean uh, something like this. Liturgies are rituals of ultimate concern. Liturgies are, are rituals of ultimate concern. Now, what does that mean? Well, I, I would unpack th three elements of that. Liturgies as rituals of ultimate concern are those cultural practices that form our identity. They are identity shaping. Secondly, because they are identity shaping, they form our loves. And then third, they mean to do that in a way that trumps other cultural formations. Do you know what I mean by trumping like a trump card? Uh, a trump card in a card game is a, is a card that beats any other card? Okay. Those cultural practices which function as liturgies would be cultural practices that are not just content to be entertainments, though they might pretend that they are, but they actually, there's something more at stake in them because they are formative, they shape you, they're not just something that you do, they do something to you. What they are shaping is this visceral core of what you long for, and they are doing that in a way that is meant to trump other ritual formations. That's why they're ultimate. Now, um, in some ways, I would not pretend to be able to analyze the cultural liturgies that you all experience, because I live in podunk Midwest, and I don't know what sort of New York City secular liturgies are. Um, but let, let me try out a, an example that might have something of a universal cachet. Um, when my kids ask to go to the mall, they ask if they can go to the temple, which is kind of a really bad joke in a philosopher's house. You know, it's like, I think they're mocking me when they do that. But it comes out of conversations we've had in which I have tried to emphasize to them 
that the mall is not a neutral space. The, the mall is not just a place to go. It is a charged space of rituals that are over time formative and in particularly over time birth in us a longing for an ultimate vision of the good life and that birth in us an ultimate vision of the good life, I would say, which is antithetical to the kingdom of God. Now, before you think I'm some sort of raving fundamentalist, let me just explain this for a second. What I mean to say, by the way, have you looked at them all? Um, Anyone who's had the chance to visit cathedrals in Europe and then go to malls in the United States has to see some resonance going on between those. So that malls are, in some sense, secular cathedrals. And they are oriented, they, they, they completely reconfigure how you inhabit space and time. Right? Have you ever been to a mall with windows? No. Right? Um, because there has to be sort of an enclosure from the outside world. Have you been to these malls that have this sort of labyrinthine layout to just screw you up so you don't know where you are and you get lost, which is intentional? And uh, um, it also makes you lose any sense of time, right? Time gets kind of reconfigured. Also, the mall sort of has its own liturgical calendar of Mother's Day, Halloween, you know. I mean, there's its own seasons. The mall is lined with icons. And those icons are the 3D mannequins of the good life. This is what, I mean, I'm thinking from the perspective of a 16 year old, right? I know this doesn't affect you. (laughs) Um, The mall has outreach. It's called advertising, right? Which are compressed, powerful little narratives that envision a good life. That good life often tends to revolve around having some product. All I mean to suggest is, if you start looking at cultural institutions and practices with this liturgical lens, (coughs) you won't be so much wondering, what does the mall believe? The mall doesn't believe anything, right? You don't walk into the mall, somebody hands you a tract and say, this is what we believe here at Neiman Marcus or something, right? No, it's not about belief. That doesn't mean that it's not about love. That doesn't mean it's not formative over time. And what the mall is so good at, I'm using the mall sort of metaphorically here, is the mall knows that we are not thinking things. (laughs) The, the, The mall knows that we are not rational, deliberative agents. The mall knows that we are tactile, visceral, affective, kinetic lovers. And so you get this this weird dissonance going on between, uh, um, on the one hand, you know, my kids are immersed in this sort of very embodied liturgy, if you will, of consumerism. What does the church do? Dumps a whole bunch of ideas and beliefs and doctrines in their heads. Who's going to win that fight? Who's going to win that war? If the core of my being, if the core of my identity is, if the center of gravity is down closer to my gut, to my heart, 
and that's formed at this imaginative, tactile, visceral level, if, if Christianity just goes on spouting a whole bunch of ideas that can get deposited in our intellectual receptacles, but the, dr the engine and driver of, of who we are is at this more tactile level, we, it, it's, we've lost. <laughs> I, I don't mean to set it up as a battle. I always sound like a fundamentalist when I start talking this way. All I mean to say is we will underestimate the formative power of these other cultural practices. So, what I'm suggesting is, if you start rethinking about culture through this liturgical lens, instead of asking what are the beliefs and ideas and, and messages that are out there, uh, instead we should undertake a sort of exegesis of these secular liturgies, which asks very different questions, I think. The thing we should be asking of, and, and I'm going to let you sort of think through, and we can talk about this in the Q&A, what are the sort of secular liturgies that are live for you. I don't know what those will be. They'll, they'll be different for all of us. But what are the secular liturgies, those cultural practices which are not just something that we do, but do something to us? What are those? And the question we should bring to those are questions like this. What, what is the vision of the kingdom that is implicit in those practices? See, the idea is, is that these cultural practices carry within them an implicit orientation to not just a penultimate good, but an ultimate vision of flourishing. What's the story that they carry? What, what does this cultural practice or this cultural institution envision as the good life? What kind of people does it want us to become? Ultimately, what does it want me to love? And then you have to answer those questions in, in conjunction with thinking about what does the kingdom of God look like? And what does it want me to love? And now, how can I measure between those? Um, so, uh, if we're going to think about transforming culture, engaging culture, I think it's equally important that we be attentive to the ways that we can be transformed by culture. Now, there's a backstory here that maybe you don't care about. The backstory is something like this. Throughout most of the 20th century, evangelical Christians were sort of acultural. And they didn't really care about engaging culture because they just had this really privatized view of the gospel as some sort of individual salvation story and God was really just trying to save souls out of the world. Thankfully, there have been very important conversations in the late 20th century and into the present where people saw that that's not really a very biblical concept. That no, there should be a, a positive Christian theology of culture which sees that God cares about more than just individual souls. He cares about the entirety of creation and seeing it flourish. And that Christians have a role to play in that. The, the thing I'm, I'm just cautioning about is that it's, it can be easy to let that newfound exuberance for engaging and transforming and infiltrating culture to be inattentive to the ways that we can be transformed by the culture when we are immersed in those practices. And so we need something like the book of Revelation uh, does. Anyway, I was going to make a Harold Camping joke, but I won't. Uh, um, the, the, book, the whole goal of the book of Revelation is not to predict what's coming. Um, it's to unveil our present. Right? So while the Roman Empire is portraying itself as this magnificent, beautiful, 
powerful pinnacle of human civilization. When the veil is taken off, you see that it's a monstrous, devouring whore. That's what the book of Revelation is about. Well, in some sense, I, I think we need a similar apocalyptic account of our culture, not in order to reject it, not in order to withdraw from it, not in order to hide from it in our holy huddles, but to just see what it is. See what, let's understand what we're, what we're getting into. Let's understand what we're stepping into. For us to, to immerse ourselves in cultural engagement, to, to become uh, uh, players in the culture, when we do that, we are not stepping into a neutral space. We are stepping into charged, formative spaces that are often captivated by some other vision of the good life. Now, I think that's exactly the kind of place that Christians should be. But I think if we don't go into that with eyes wide open and recognizing these cultural, uh, uh, the formative powers of cultural practices, we will end up um, hoodwinked. We will end up automating loves unwittingly. We will not, we will maybe even actually be so focused on thinking things through correctly that we won't realize that our loves are being transformed in the process. I'm out of time, but let me just say in closing, if we had more time, this is exactly why Christian worship is absolutely central to the project of Christian cultural renewal. Because it, is, it should be in, in embodied, full-orbed, holistic, historic Christian worship that the story of the gospel and the vision of the kingdom is seeping into my bones, not just as a message I'm getting in a 45-minute sermon, but through a picture that I am absorbing through a whole panoply of um, aesthetic practices, you could say, that, that are working on the body. And so not just any Christian worship will do it. This is why form matters in Christian worship. This is why, by the way, uh, um, out of this picture, the arts become absolutely crucial as what captivate our imagination and that shape our orientation over time. And so I think the church still has a lot of work to do, especially evangelical and Protestant churches like us have a lot of work to do to think about what worship that would be formative looks like, not just worship that is informative. It will be an it will be informative, embodied, tactile, visceral worship that we are formed to be precisely those agents of cultural renewal who come as ambassadors of a coming kingdom. Thanks very much. CFW exists to explore and investigate the gospel's unique power to renew hearts, communities, and the world in and through our day-to-day -day work. To learn more about CFW's programs and resources, please visit faithandwork.com. Thank you.